0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. John, Tim, and I will be taking a holiday break for a few weeks, but in the meantime, we have something special for you. On prior episodes, we've introduced you to Amy Gunn, who co-hosts the Heels in the Courtroom podcast, also produced by the Simon Law Firm. Amy is also a co-host of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested, which features interviews of prominent trial lawyers, people who have made an impact in the courtroom. The folks at Trial Tested have kindly granted us permission to broadcast a few of their episodes here on The Jury is Out. We hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Trial Tested. Today I have the great privilege of spending some time with District Attorney of Manhattan, Cyrus Vance Jr. D.A. Vance was born and raised in New York City has an undergraduate degree from Yale and a JD from Georgetown University. He spent his first six years in practice in the Manhattan District Attorney's office as an assistant DA under the legendary Bob Morgenthau. He then made the decision along with his wife Peggy to move to Seattle where he practiced for 16 years in the area of criminal defense. During that time, he was an adjunct professor at the Seattle University of Law School teaching trial advocacy. He returned to New York City in 2004, and by 2009 was running for the Manhattan District Attorney. He was successful in that endeavor, took office in January of 2010, and will be finishing his second term at the end of 2021. He is the son of Sirens Vance Sr., who served as Secretary of the Army under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. He was also the Secretary of the Defense under President Johnson and the Secretary of State under President Carter. He joined the American College of Trial Lawyers in 2008, and we're pleased today to be speaking with him about his first stint in the DA's office all the way to current day. Good afternoon, DA Vance. It's a pleasure to have you here this afternoon. Thank you so much for giving your time to us today. You are ending your term, your second term, as the DA of Manhattan at the end of 2021. What advice do you have for your successor, Alvin Bragg?
2: Well, Alvin Bragg, who has been elected to succeed me, is a experienced public servant, experienced in criminal law aspects of public service. So I think he will come in to lead this very large criminal justice agency with the background and sophistication that's needed to do the job here. My advice to Mr. Bragg, without being presumptuous, is over the course of the time one is district attorney, Obviously, one has to be flexible and have a level of humility to adopt to and adapt to situations that perhaps you didn't anticipate when you came into office, policies which may change or you think may change while you're in office. But generally speaking, I think when one comes into an office, one sort of defines what are the principles that they are. Going to use to make decisions and run an agency as dynamic as this one is. And when I came in, this is 12 years ago, and these terms weren't as familiar or used as much 12 years ago, but I said every question I ask myself as DA about a case or about a program or a policy is going to be viewed through the lens of two questions. Does it make us safer? And is it fair? And answering those two questions, will steer you I think in the right direction on almost all the issues that you have when you're a district attorney is what I'm doing, the decision I'm making does is enhancing public safety and at the same time Is it enhancing fairness, moving justice forward in our system? So those are the basic principles that have guided me. And obviously as DA, I've had lots of cases with challenges that I didn't anticipate, new areas of practice that we didn't anticipate. And so one has to be nimble and need to be able to move your balance from one foot to the other. But I think it's important as the district attorney to have a fundamental set of guidelines and values that you can use and rely upon to make decisions
0: With respect to those fundamental guidelines that you referenced, thinking over your career and your life, where do you think you learned and developed those fundamental guidelines?
2: I was a young assistant district attorney here in the 1980s during probably the most intense time of high crime in New York City in this century. And so I obviously had a lot of experience dealing with Lots of cases as an assistant district attorney from a new misdemeanor assistant DA to doing homicides and investigations into organized crime and white collar crime. So I learned and I learned through my own experience and working with others who were more experienced and seasoned than I was back in the 1980s. I learned, you know, about the basic values that drives prosecution decision making. And at the time, Bob Morgenthau was the DA here and his guidance put simply was you're here to do what's right. And that's what I'm asking you to do in every case. And so early on, I think the ethos of this office, as it was imparted to me as a young assistant DA, was just that. You're not here to get convictions. You're not here to do anyone any favors. You are here to look at everything you're doing, every case, and making sure that what you're doing, you believe is the right thing based upon I think Bob never said these words, but based upon enhancing public safety and ensuring fairness, fairness for the accused, fairness for the victim, fairness for the city. That's where I think I got the most training. But I grew up in a household of lawyers. My father was a lawyer, although he wasn't a criminal lawyer. And I think watching him by osmosis and how he talked about his law practice and the values that drove him, it really wasn't so much about safety and fairness because he wasn't a prosecutor, but it was about honesty. It was about being a public servant and to appreciate the weight of those words, which means you are not working for yourself, for personal aggrandizement or headlines. You are here to work for others. And so Amy, I think that's where those values came from. I was a defense lawyer for 20 years after I left this office in the 1980s, defense lawyer for 20 years. And so I, from the other side, appreciated and understood the importance of prosecutors being open, direct, straightforward, and being true to their word and being faithful to their obligations as public servants. So my entire career, I think, has been informed by those values and criteria from my childhood, through my young days as a lawyer, through my time as a defense lawyer. And then when I came back to to be the Manhattan District Attorney, what I really was setting about was to make sure that I was implementing those views and the decisions that I made for this office and in this office.
0: It strikes me when you mentioned one of your fundamental principles, particularly the one about justice. It reminds me of a case that your office handled recently involving the murder of Malcolm X from 1965, where his two accusers were recently exonerated. Why was it important for your office to acknowledge those errors? And how did you go about handling that?
2: You know, in our conviction integrity work, and we started this unit in 2010, at the time, I think we're the second office in the country that opened up a unit such as this. The goal was, as I was coming out of defense practice and coming into this huge office with this in the spotlight and with a million questions being asked about how we were handling cases. And that's sort of one of the most powerful moments in the development of the innocence movement nationally. I thought this office needed to have a way of being able to articulate to the public transparently, how we were going to address the issue of wrongful convictions, which by the time I was DA was something that I think most lawyers in the country were familiar with. And the concept that innocent people had been convicted in many cases around the country was recognized as a fact. Knowing that and coming into this office, I felt, as I said, that we needed to have a system, a process by which we could address those public concerns in individual cases, and to be transparent about how we did that so in the case of the two exonerees in the malcolm x matter ultimately there was a very thorough investigation done very difficult because it was 55 years after the murder had occurred the evidence physical evidence was largely lost most of the witnesses the vast majority of witnesses to every aspect of the case were also no longer alive and therefore lost but there were files that we were able to access, principally held by the FBI, and then scores of witness interviews, not necessarily witnesses of what happened, but witnesses of what facts we could glean about the case that informed our investigation. And ultimately, Amy, that was memorialized in a 40-page brief that we filed with the report. The decision to dismiss and vacate those convictions did rest on the fundamental fairness principle. What drove our work in conviction integrity was to first determine whether there was some fundamental defect, either in the trial process or in the investigation, that could have resulted in a wrongful conviction. And certainly that, in our opinion, did apply in the Malcolm X case. It was obviously a case which at the time was extremely fraught with emotionality, with issues of race and justice. And at the end of the day, what we found is that the two gentlemen whose cases we dismissed, they did not have access to information which was intentionally withheld from them and from this office in many instances, that had they had that, they well may have been acquitted. And it was because information was held back that identified other potential witnesses that supported their defense and the like. So ultimately, we were focusing on basic fairness. It was a lift. To do an investigation that dated this far back and to come to concrete conclusions that were reasoned and clear notwithstanding the passage of such time but that's what we did and it was not a hard decision once we had the information in front of us to understand that this was not a process that was fair as we think about it today now some rules may have been different in 1966 but I didn't want some of those rules to stand in the way of what I thought was the fundamental issue. Did these gentlemen receive a fair trial? And I think that's the purpose in one sense of conviction integrity units is to look beyond technicalities, but to have a defined standard that you need to meet in order for the case to be vacated and dismissed, and then to act if justice calls out for it. And I think it did in this case.
0: So DA Vance, it occurs to me from all the research that I've done on your time in the Manhattan DA's office, as well as your career that preceded that, you really do live by these two guideposts of does it make us collectively safer and is it fundamentally fair? And one of the prosecutions that strikes me as really transgressing both of those guideposts is the Harvey Weinstein prosecution. Can you tell us about that?
2: The decision to prosecute Harvey Weinstein was... Something that I felt very comfortable doing as the district attorney, notwithstanding the real difficulties that we knew we would have in achieving a conviction in that case. Difficulties because the women, the survivors who were victimized by Harvey Weinstein were, because of the dynamics of the way in which he attacked the victims, were challenging in the sense that they were women who maintained some forms of communication and contact with Mr. Weinstein, notwithstanding the fact that they had been sexually assaulted. Now, I would say before the Me Too movement, those facts may have caused jurors to discount the testimony of the women, perhaps thinking that if you maintained a relationship Of some kind with someone who had sexually assaulted you, those things are mutually inconsistent. It can't be true that he assaulted you, otherwise you would not have maintained some relationship with him. But we've learned so much, Amy, over the last number of years about violence in the workplace, sexual violence in the workplace, and how victims, much like domestic violence victims, victims of sexual assault are often preyed upon by the assaulter psychologically. And it is not uncommon, in sexual assault cases for women or men who have been sexually assaulted to maintain some kind of relationship communications, and in some instances, even some kind of relationship with the abuser. By the time 2018 had come around, I felt, having met the survivors in our case and knowing that these women were going to be heavily cross-examined about not only the facts of the assault, but the degree to which they maintained some kind of communication or relationship with Mr. Weinstein, I felt absolutely convinced that if a jury just heard them and listened to them, that a jury today would understand they were telling the truth and that what they described as happening could in fact happen and did in fact happen. And that's what I think happened with the jury. In 2019, when that verdict came down, we had a jury that was a mix of young men and women, more senior men and women, different ethnic backgrounds, different races. I think all of them, though, were able to look at these young women. And these women completely and honestly told their stories about their dealings with Harvey Weinstein. They were honest and open about areas where some might have criticized them for maintaining contact. They explained why that was. And at the end of the day, a very sort of complicated emotional case with unequal power dynamics between the defendant and the victims, when they all told their stories and all six of them, I think the juries understood what happened and believed them. And I must say that there were a number of of men of my generation on the jury. And I think my belief is they listened to this testimony and they could see, I think, their own daughters or their own nieces as being perhaps like one of the young women in this case, being victimized by someone who you know, had a much more powerful profile than they did and who, in some sense, held their future careers in his hands, or that's what he tried to impress upon them. We were not going to back away from this case because it was difficult. It certainly was. I thought it was really important that we bring this case forward. It was a case I had no, you know, I could not predict. With any degree of certainty, would we win or not? But I was 100% certain that we should bring it. We did. And thankfully, because of the great work of the assistants in our office who tried that case and investigated it, and the courage of the jury and the open-mindedness and common sense, you know, the verdict, I think, was, was quite understandable, even though during the course of the trial, you were hearing testimony from these women that I think a decade ago would have made jurors perhaps really question whether or not they could be believed.
0: Over the years, we've all heard the stories, we've all gone through, you know, these types of cases where it's just, is it a he said, she said? And what should we do? From my perspective, you have to take that chance. You have to put the facts out for the jury to review and leave it to them to make the right decisions. And that being done and having proved to be successful— don't you think that that would encourage or give strength in the future to other folks in your position who make these decisions?
2: Well, I certainly believe so. And I think a good example is sex trafficking cases that I saw being done out of Southern California jurisdictions was a real impetus f- for me to open a human sex trafficking unit in our office, which in since its inception in two thousand and fifteen has you know turned into a dynamic, very aggressive, very successful if you were, you know if you 're determining where people held account successful unit and i learned i you know I learned that in part from watching what. My colleagues had done elsewhere. I'm surprised that Harvey Weinstein has not been charged in other jurisdictions. Now, L.A., on the same day we opened our trial in Manhattan, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office filed charges in L.A., and those charges are now pending. There are probably a lot of other jurisdictions in which Mr. Weinstein committed similar offenses, and I'm slightly curious as to why there have been no cases coming out of those jurisdictions. Not critical of it. I'm just saying I'm curious. I hope, however, that other prosecutors around the country see what happened in New York with this case and are given a higher degree of confidence and particularly the lawyers doing this kind of work in those offices are going to see, yeah, we can do that.
0: You've mentioned a number of very talented lawyers in your office that you are obviously very proud of. And you yourself have been a successful trial attorney your entire career. What makes a successful trial lawyer?
2: I taught trial advocacy when I was in Seattle for 14 years. What I used to tell the assistants, many of them who had just total stage fright when they were asked to do and prepare and then do opening statements, cross-examinations, you name it, was that you could be a very good trial lawyer just by preparation. And secondly, staying within the zone of your personality. I think juries look at witnesses and they also look at lawyers. And your credibility as a lawyer to the jury is key when you're trying a case. And I think it's important for lawyers who are young starting out and lawyers like myself who've been at it a while is to, in every way you act and speak in front of the jury or the judge in a courtroom, that you do in a way that it's clear that you're doing so honestly, with intention and without acting. So what makes a great trial lawyer? I think sometimes it's years of skill and practice. But I think great trial lawyers are ones who have the capacity to have the jury believe them. The lawyer has, because he or she is great, has laid things out clearly so that it could be understood and has crystallized the case, the essential decisions the jury needs to make. And I think that there are a few lawyers who are great, but I think many lawyers can do great trial work. If they know the law, if they know procedure, if they know the facts, and if they are genuine in how they are communicating their case during the course of the trial.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Being yourself and having that recognized by the jury is really important. We hear this all the time, be yourself, be genuine. I think sometimes when you're finding your way as a young lawyer, you're still not exactly sure what that means. Do you have any specific tips for younger lawyers about how to find out who their genuine trial self is?
2: I would recommend young lawyers go to trials. That's what we encourage before COVID. And and now as we come out of COVID, that's what we really want our young lawyers to do here is that we want them to learn trial skills by doing the cases themselves, their own trials, which is key. But you need to look at the best in the business. By looking at the best in the business, and we have some of the best in the business in this office, you're going to up your game. You know, look at the dynamics between the skilled lawyer in the courtroom and what's going on in the courtroom, and you think about yourself in that situation. So what I would say to young lawyers, how to find yourself is to, as you are in court, and as you're doing hearings, uh, as you, before you've done a lot of trials, is to... Really you know, hear your voice and find your voice in the courtroom. Try to focus always on being plain and clear, and always make sure that the impression that you're leaving in the courtroom when you are arguing and have left the courtroom is one where you have been honest and open with the court, with the strengths of your case or arguments, and in some cases, the weaknesses. If you are believed by the court to be honest and straightforward, you may lose some arguments where the facts aren't in your favor. But ultimately, I think you'll win the court in the long run, in the course of your career. I would, as a young lawyer, encourage people to get into court as much as they can, try to find that voice. I would urge them to have supervisors from their unit watch them in court and give them counsel and reactions to how they are presenting themselves in court. And young lawyers, I just think, have to be open to guidance from their elders And they need to be listening to themselves and finding their comfort zone in the court. And ultimately, over time, practice, 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 you will become the trial lawyer you want to be.
0: I know that you've gone from public service to private, back to public service. And running for office as a lawyer adds an extra layer because you are a lawyer and the ethical obligations that we have as lawyers. How did you square running for public office as a lawyer with the kind of rough and tumble politics that we see these days?
2: I ran for office with a very clear idea of what I wanted to do when I got in the office. And that was informed by my time as a young assistant here and 20 years as a defense lawyer. So as I was running a campaign, I had thought out positions and I had thought out the reasons behind those positions. And so I was presenting a plan and a platform and a clear path forward that I expected to be held to account on when I promised it. And so I didn't actually feel that I needed to compromise in any way my positions or my beliefs when I was running for office. Now, I think that the public actually wants a lawyer to to be in the district attorney's job, who is not presenting a negative message about everybody else, but an affirmative message about herself or himself. So I never dived into active, hostile criticism of my opponents. Everybody when I ran for DA said, you've got to go negative on this, you've got to go negative on that. And I never did. I never did because I didn't think it was really what the people wanted and it wasn't what I wanted to do.
0: It sounds to me like you were taking some of your own advice, which was being yourself. Engaging in the discourse, the adverse discourse, that's just not who you are.
2: Yeah. I, I Look, you're going to have strong disagreements. But these races, particularly in these times, I think are comically adversarial. Frankly, looking at some of these adversarial debates, I just can't take it seriously. It's childish in many respects. And I think the public is looking for more. And I think the candidate who stands apart from the crowd by standing above the pettiness, as long as that candidate has something to say... And she's telling them what she believes in and what she's going to do and that she's honest and she's ready for the job. That's what I think voters want. And I think what sets a candidate like that apart from others is the understanding that ultimately the public is entertained by hostile criticism, but it doesn't really bring the public what it wants, which is leadership, honesty, and humility.
0: Leadership, that was the next question on my list. It seems to me that is something that maybe is lacking in a lot of our public discourse. How do you define leadership?
2: I define leadership as a process. It's the process of informed decision-making. When we make a decision on a case where I'm involved, an investigation, um, controversial case, I think you have to, as an office, be sure that you've gone through the evaluation process to have come to what you believe is the right answer that you can defend. I think leadership is defined in part by letting the office that you work in and the community you serve in see how you arrived at the decisions you arrived at and be clear about it. And I think that is a form of leadership. When you can't explain why you made the decision to do one thing that is controversial. I think people then in this area particularly are distrustful. I think people are increasingly distrustful of government and of prosecutors and police officers. So I think to lead an office, particularly dealing with an office with lots of controversial cases, your office needs to perceive that you are thinking squarely and properly and honestly about the case decisions before you and that they know that when you've made your decision about what to do with a case that it's not a process that was informed by bias or money or power but that it's based upon the facts and the law and what's the right thing to do now that's one form of leadership another form of leadership in this business i think is to to lead the office to develop the skills, to take the challenges on that confront this office in the 21st century. And that meant for me immediately understanding that cybercrime in all its forms was going to be one of our biggest challenges. And the office when I came in was not an office that was modernized in any of the senses of the way we are today. So it was leadership with the assistance of tons of other people helping and supporting this to essentially Be in a position now 10 years out to have a 75-person cyber unit that is a leader in cyber investigations and prosecutions around the country and indeed around the globe. So it's seeing the needs of what's coming down the pike and preparing your office to be able to protect the public and to speak about those issues knowledgeably, intelligently in the time that you are in office. Leadership, I think, is also taking cases like a Harvey Weinstein case where it's a very high stakes thing, but you think it's the right thing to do, recognizing that it may be a case that you lose. So there's so many aspects of leadership, but fundamentally, I think it comes down to knowing who you are, to have a firm vision of where this office should be going. And I think you need to treat your lawyers and your professional staff with respect and courtesy. You need to make them know that you are empowering them to be leaders themselves. Uh, You bring them in the room and listen to everybody when they have an opinion on a matter that is within their sphere of work. And I think a leader listens whenever possible before making decisions and listens as you go through a process of leading an office. Because ultimately, you can't have leadership without people behind you. You can't get people behind you unless they feel supported, respected, and that They are proud of the work that they do for the institution that they are serving in, not making the money that they could be making somewhere
0: else. What words of encouragement would you give to lawyers looking to enter public service, whether they're at the beginning of the career or mid-career? First of all, I guess I should ask you, would you encourage lawyers to enter public service? And if so, how would you encourage them to do it?
2: Well, I recognize that the cost of getting legal education today is so onerous that it actually prevents many lawyers from going into public service early on in their career, that they have hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans they need to pay back. And often, even if they're interested in public service, that delays their ability to enter public service and still care for their family and meet their basic needs. But I will say this, the years I spent as a young district attorney were the most powerful, important years of my professional life. And I think that for everyone who has worked in this office that I've ever known, whether they've stayed here three years or 20 years, they all would say, I believe, that working in this office and doing this work was the most important influence on their professional career. And I think the work that you do in public service in an office like this, and it doesn't have to be an office just like this, it could be in any number of ways in which you could serve the public, but public service gives you the opportunity to serve the public. And in serving the public, I think there's enormous satisfaction because you recognize you're doing something that is meaningful, not just to you, but meaningful to the public. So I think one has to be oriented toward that kind of service philosophy. And I think people who go into this work or want to go into this work are servants. They want to be public servants. They will take pride and satisfaction in that. You know, I would counsel, and I do all the time, young men and women who want to do litigation, want to do criminal law, to enter public service. And then they'll decide when the time is right to go on and do something else, as I did.
0: Was that part, that excitement, that love for the law that you learned in the DA's office early on, was that always something that was in the back of your mind, even during your years in Seattle in private practice?
2: When I left the office in 88 and my wife and I got in our car, she was seven months pregnant. We drove to Seattle without you know a doctor on the other end you know, to help us with the baby. I still, I felt that if I were to have any job that I aspired to, it would be to be the Manhattan District Attorney because I thought then, and I think now, 12 years into this job, this is such a unique office for tons of reasons. The scope of the work we do is global. The the innovation that this office is engaged in is remarkable. I felt then that if I could be the Manhattan DA, that would be what I wanted to do. Now, Bob Morgan thought at the time still had 20 more years of time in office. He retired when he was 90. So I went West for 16 years. It was never realistic in my mind that I was going to try to be the Manhattan DA because Bob was here and I respected him enormously and I was certainly never going to run against him. I came back to New York after 9-11 within several years because it was the right thing for us to do as a family. And I had a sister who was seriously ill and a mother who was seriously ill and my wife desperately wanted to get back to her family on the East Coast. So we came back for family reasons. But when I saw the opportunity to run for this job, not knowing that I was going to have stiff competition, I felt if I didn't take the plunge and try, I'd be kicking myself for the rest of my life. So I took the plunge and I turned out to be a better candidate than I thought I would be. And I ended up being district attorney, but it was something that was always in the back of my mind, but it was never something I felt was real until I returned to New York some 20 years after I left.
0: That brings me to ambition. Ambition is, I think, different for everyone, but essentially it's setting high goals for yourself and striving to reach those goals. Your ambition to want to strive to be the Manhattan DA and reaching that is unique. Is ambition good or bad?
2: Perhaps ambition may not be the word I would use to define what I think we're talking about. You know, I want to make the best of myself as a lawyer, and I want to be as excited and engaged as I can be, those were my ambitions. I've never been someone whose ambition was to make money, but I've always been ambitious to be in the ring, you know, in the middle of the interesting cases, interesting policy disputes, to be a full and active participant in the practice of law and in law's impact and interaction with our lives and our society. But ambition is good if it's for the right reasons. And it's bad and it can catch you if it's for the wrong reasons. And I think we have seen many instances, even in New York State in the last several years or years with politicians whose ambitions got them caught up in behavior that ultimately led to their downfall.
0: Your answer leads me to my next question, which is what is your ambition for the future?
2: We just had two grandchildren twins. And so my ambition is to, you know, uh, it, I went to Seattle, Amy, if I can step back and I went to Seattle and left New York because I felt... It was important for me and my wife felt it was important for us to go someplace different outside of the zone of influence of our parents and our families. My dad cast a long shadow as a very well-known lawyer in New York City, and I loved him. But I felt, you know, I'm going to go somewhere and have an experience with my wife and a family that is all our own. And that's what we did. While I was out in Seattle, what really mattered to me was I could have a really interesting practice of law. The quality of the bench and the bar, very high. The cases were very interesting. But I could also spend the amount of time that I wanted to spend with my family because the nature of the work life balance in that community. Now I'm leaving this job and my ambition is to re-engage as a lawyer, perhaps in private practice, to be fully committed to building a practice and trying cases or doing work and I I love the private practice of law. And so I'm excited about going back to be a non- public lawyer, there's a lot more flexibility you have in your life. You can make campaign contributions, for God's sake. I mean, I, I used to love supporting candidates. There's things you can't do as a public servant that I think are really exciting and important and part of being an engaged citizen and lawyer. So I'm excited for that change to back to the private sector and the flexibility. And I'm also excited to sort of get out of the public sphere in the sense that this job is sort of 24-7 and you need to sort of always be mindful of what you're doing. And I think it'll be a little more relaxing to be out of the role of DA and be back in the role of private citizen. And I'll also be able to hopefully spend a little more time with my family and my grandchildren and to have that part of my life fulfilled.
0: I think it's important for people to hear that. But as a woman lawyer in this business, working full-time and I'm you know into 25 years, the fact that the first person to mention work-life balance in this conversation was you is remarkable to me because it just goes to show choosing a profession such as law can be all-encompassing and it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we're doing the best we can to have a balanced life, whatever that means for you. And even for someone who has had a successful and fulfilling career as you, it's important for others to hear that that was something that was always on your mind. And you made choices in your life and with your family with that in mind.
2: And we did. And I did. And I think I was very glad that I
0: did. What would you say was one of your most proud moments?
2: I had so many cases as a defense lawyer and prosecutor, where I was deeply involved with the case and proud of its outcome, that it's hard to, you know, it's hard to pick one. But I think there's a couple of things that I'm really proud about, not necessarily a moment, but a time and an endpoint to something that I had worked on hard. The first was ultimately finding out who killed Eitan Pates after 35 years and promising the family... The Pates family that I would reopen the case, and then setting out to do what I thought was probably impossible. The case had been picked over by every federal agency and every state agency time and again.
0: And Aton Pates was a, if I've um, done my research correctly, was a six-year-old child who was murdered. Was it nineteen seventy-nine?
2: Nineteen seventy-nine. I should have I should have given a background, but briefly, Aton Pates was a six-year-old boy living in Soho in the nineteen seventies, one of three children to Stan and Julie Pates lived in a loft and was a very precocious, cute little kid and always bugging his mom to let him walk to the school bus alone. And one day the mom relented because the elder daughter was putting up a fuss and not getting out of bed. And so the mother was you know, dealing with getting her daughter up and out for school and said to Eitan, okay, sure, today you can go. It was about a block and a half walk. And he left home that day with a little school lunch box and a Backpack and turned the corner out of sight of the family and was never seen again. And his disappearance led to what became a nationwide phenomenon of putting his picture on milk cartons around the country, essentially saying, Have you seen this child? And it started, I think, the national movement to try to solve missing children's cases and cases where kids had disappeared. And the family never ever again heard from Aton, but there was no proof that he had died and no proof whether he was alive. And for 35 years, that family left their door open every night thinking that Aton might come back and they didn't want the door cl- They didn't want him to not be able to get in and they never changed their phone number for the same reason that if he called, they wanted to make sure that they would hear him, but he never came back. And ultimately we were able some 35 years later through a series of circumstances that were unforeseen, but were triggered by our recommencing the investigation. We identified who we thought killed Aton. He ultimately confessed to it. That case was tried after two and a half years of intense litigation or two years, and it hung 11 to one for conviction. And so we had to try the case again. And in the second trial, Amy, almost all the jurors from the first trial came back for almost every day of the second trial, which lasted months because their experience as being jurors on the first case was so powerful to them. And when they had come to the conclusion that they knew who the killer was and he's sitting right there in the courtroom, and when the case had to be tried again, they simply were drawn back to that courtroom in a show of support for the family and because it meant something to them. When he was finally convicted, the jury deliberations in both trials went on for weeks, literally weeks. And when the verdict came down, I was on a plane to San Francisco. Deliberations were ongoing, and now you can get online in an airplane. And so I was online you know, talking to folks at work and doing stuff, and I got the news. And that moment was certainly one of the most powerful moments I've had as a lawyer. I, you know, I burst into tears, and that was a very important moment for me, and certainly stands out as one of the most important. The second is different. The second is, as a consequence of our white-collar investigations into misconduct by big foreign banks that were violating U.S. laws and New York state laws, we investigated and prosecuted 12 banks over the course of about nine years and ultimately ended up recovering about $14 billion. And those dollars were split to the federal government and to our city and state. But a portion of those by forfeiture went to this office and we became the largest criminal justice foundation in the country for a period of years with a billion dollars in forfeiture to invest. We invested it in our city partners, our law enforcement partners, our housing developments to make them safer. We funded a, for $40 million, a nationwide program to identify and test backlog rape kits that had never been tested in jurisdictions all over the country, trying to solve those cases and bring closure to those survivors. We invested $250 million in 50 not-for-profits in Manhattan, enabling them to provide first-class services, but at the grassroots level, to families at risk of criminal justice involvement for their kids and supporting victims who are especially vulnerable, like LGBTQ victims and transgender victims, and then to invest in educating men and women in prison who wanted a college education, because we knew that that education, getting that degree was probably the most important thing one could do to reduce the chance that someone would end up back before the court. So it was the extraordinary work by our office and our lawyers to do that work in these complex cases, which took years. And fighting banks, these guys don't roll over. They'll take it to the end. And our office prevailed again and again and again, and ultimately took all the monies that we received and took the proceeds of crime and put it back in our communities. And that is, I think, one of the achievements of our time in the office, not my time, but our time of the work of these assistants that I'll be most proud of.
0: I have to go back to Eton Pates' case and just the idea that you were able to bring justice for this family. And I know it was you and your team, and you're so humble about that. But I can't imagine how satisfying that is to be able to provide that gift that family. Were you able to speak to them and hear what it meant to them?
2: Oh, of course. Of course. I spoke to them on the phone that evening and then I came back and a couple days later we met. We've done a lot of cold case work in this office. Eitan Pates is one that particularly resonates with me for the reasons I've described. But there are other cases that we've done. Malcolm X is one of them, but sort of a different nature. But other cases where we solve homicides that are decades, 30 years old, because we have the skill set to do it. And we're the Manhattan DA's office and we'll take on these cases and we'll provide the resources. And when family members reach closure in a case after 35 years, it is powerful. And this is, I think, what drives lawyers to do this work. And so I know that the lawyers who come here are motivated and are satisfied and are uplifted and are fulfilled by trying to do what's right. And it's hurly burly and you've you got to fight hard for your cases and you've got to be a fierce advocate, but you also, and I think they do, feel the burden and it's absolutely the responsibility they have to be humble. It's getting to what you think is the right result for the right reasons. Every day you go to work and that's what you're supposed to do, that's pretty powerful. And that's why lawyers like to do this work in this office and that's what brings them here.
0: And what a gift that you have And that you've given to be able to lead your office and staff to those ends.
2: When I leave here, I'm sure I'll be dissolved in tears, but it has been a gift and it hasn't always been easy. And I think that's the nature of the job. I knew that when I was coming into it, but it has been fulfilling in ways that I could not have predicted when I came back and took this job 12 years ago.
0: Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon.
2: Well, such a pleasure to talk with you and meet you.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Trial Tested featuring Amy Gunn of The Simon Law Firm. We will be sharing another episode of Trial Tested next week. This is Eric Feith. We'll see you then.
0: The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.